Hey there, welcome back to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Aulani Santiago, here as always to administer your daily dose of death. So I'm going to apologize real quick, y'all, but this week's episode isn't a brand new one, as you can see from the title. It's the redux of Cruel Intentions from the Stories from the Mortuary YouTube channel. As some of you might know, I make costumes for Universal Studios in Orlando, and if any of you have heard of Halloween Horror Nights, then you can imagine the workload right now as we prepare for the biggest event of the year. And besides work being crazy, I also had finals for Thanatology and Cremation. I had to turn in all my final projects and everything and there just wasn't enough time for me to finish writing the next episode. But I want y'all to get excited for our next story because once again, we're going to deviate from the norm and it's not going to be about murder, but it will still be just as spooky. Again, just a testament to how behind I've been lately. When July started, I didn't realize that it was Disability Pride Month before I released the episode about Vera Jo Regal. So I didn't get a chance to talk about what this month means. Even though it's been celebrated by some members of the disability community for over 30 years, most people are unaware that July is Disability Pride Month. The Americans with Disabilities Act, also known as the ADA, was passed on July 26, 1990, and it was to prohibit discrimination against people with disabilities. Following this legislation, Boston held the first Disability Pride Day event in July 1990, and Disability Pride Month was born. Since then, disability pride events have been celebrated in the month of July in cities across the globe, and the list of participating cities continues to grow. While disability pride and parades are a relatively new concept, the idea of disability pride is rooted in the same foundation as movements like LGBTQ and Black Pride. In 2013, Chicago's Disability Pride Parade defined their mission in three ways. To change the way people think about and define disability, to break down and end the internalized shame among people with disabilities, and to promote the belief in society that disability is a natural and beautiful part of human diversity in which people living with disabilities can take pride. But what does pride mean in the context of disability? For many disabled people, seeing these two words in the same sentence is a novel concept. People with disabilities have traditionally been made to feel less than and ashamed of their disabled identity by society. The very fact that they may need accommodations or special services in order to do the most basic things in life can lead to an internalized feeling of shame. Every time they have to say sorry for needing a ramp to access a venue, or have to explain to someone why they needed extra time in a test, it chips away at the pride they have in themselves and their disabled identities. To overcome these feelings, it's helpful to look at the social model of disability. The social model says yes, people may have medical conditions, but it's society that disables them. It's inaccessibility that's the disabling thing, not some problem deep within them that needs to be fixed. If the ramp was always there, or we all just did away with the notion that doing well under time pressure equals academic success, disabilities wouldn't lead people to have those feelings of shame and internalized guilt in the first place. Although we don't need to wait until July to talk about cases with disabled victims, since I didn't have a new episode this week, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to bring attention back to the case of Jennifer Lee Daugherty. Even if you've heard this story already on the YouTube channel or from anywhere else, I do want to give a trigger warning for sexual assault. Before we start the episode, as per usual, I do need your help in another missing Indigenous woman's case. As of an article updated on March 14th, 2022, it's been almost 10 months since Ronell Rose Bennett was last seen in Shiprock, New Mexico. 
With each passing day comes a growing fear among loved ones. Quote, she was a sweet girl, a sweet lady to her kids, and she took care of them. Rose Yazzie, which is Bennett's mother, said. Yazzie hasn't heard from her daughter since June 15, 2021. She said Bennett was supposed to attend her daughter's 10th birthday, just days before, in Farmington. However, she never made it. Quote, her daughter kept texting her, Mom, remember it's my birthday today. She kept looking out to the road and she kept wanting to see her mom. Yazzie said she spoke with a police officer and filed a missing person report on June 21st at the Shiprock Police Department. Yet despite her efforts, she said the report wasn't found in the department system until days later. Quote, two days later, I went to the criminal investigator here in Shiprock and I just talked to him over the phone. This was new to him and he didn't know anything about it, Yazzie said. From then on, Yazzie says answers from police were far and few between. I kept calling the police department and finally they just got tired of me. Sometimes I would go in and try and wait until an officer came in and they'll say he's out. Three months after Bennett went missing, family members found her shoes and a sweater in the north area of Shiprock. Yazzie said police collected the evidence but haven't contacted her since. Quote, maybe she would have been found if we started it being in the system and all that, Yazzie said. Gerald Harrison, brother of Bennett, often spends his days and nights searching for his sister. I miss her, just her laughter and her smile. The stuff she says, it makes me laugh, Harrison said. Before Bennett went missing, Harrison lived and worked in Breckenridge, Colorado. However, since her disappearance, he moved back to Shiprock to help with search efforts in his sister's disappearance. He said he scoured all over Shiprock just to find her. Quote, I check on tips or wherever somebody calls. I think we've seen her here if you check this place and I'll leave and I'll go, Harrison said. While the task can be overwhelming, he knows it has to be done, especially as the only brother and protector of his own family. Quote, I would like for the cops to at least be there, Harrison said. At least send one guy with me. I know it's a boring job, but I want to do it. Janelle is the sister of Rennell Rose Bennett. She says her disappearance has had the worst impact on the children within the family, including her young son. Quote, it's really hard for my son because he was auntie's baby, Janelle said. He would be like, mom, I miss auntie. When is she coming home? Yet the devastation hits hardest for Bennett's own children, a 12-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter. Quote, they'll get sad. They'll just sit there and we always try to keep them happy, try to keep it off their minds, Janelle said. Despite the endless pain, family members still remain hopeful for a chance to see Bennett home once again. Quote, Tiny, if you're out there, you know we love you, Janelle said. We want you to come home. The babies, they all miss you. Quote, I'm just told that she's out there. I'm just hopeful that she's still here with us. I have faith that she's still out there, Yazzie said. Yazzie is currently the legal guardian of Bennett's children. Rennell Rose Bennett has black hair, brown eyes, and weighs 125 pounds. She's 5'1 and has a tattoo of the name Treeston, spelled T-R-E-A-S-T-E-N, on her right inner forearm and a tattoo of the letter B behind her left ear. She's of Navajo descent and the agent for her case is Dina Lee. If you have any information on Bennett's whereabouts, contact the Navajo Police Department Shiprock District at 505 3681350. Along with the sources for this episode, you can find a link with a description and picture of Rennell in the show notes. When we return from the break, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? 
Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. According to the CDC, one in four adults in the United States live with a disability. After mobility disability, the next most common type is cognition, followed by independent living, hearing, vision, and self-care. It's difficult to imagine someone inflicting harm upon someone with a disability, but when six sinister minds come together, the unimaginable becomes a dreadful reality. On February 8, 2010, Jennifer Lee Daugherty left her parents' Mount Pleasant home for a sleepover in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Jennifer had a doctor's appointment in Greensburg scheduled for the next day, so she planned to sleep over at a friend's apartment, then make her appointment and return home. She wrote a note for her mother, I hope that you will have a good day at work, and I also love you very much. I will talk to you sometime later. Her stepfather, Bobby, dropped her off at the bus station. Jennifer gave him a kiss on the cheek and then boarded the bus to Greensburg by herself. Jennifer was born Thursday, November 8, 1979, in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Her father, Richard S. Daugherty, was from Pittsburgh and was divorced from her mother, Denise J. Murphy. Jennifer lived with her mother and her stepfather, Bobby Murphy, in Mount Pleasant. In July of 2009, Jennifer met a 19-year-old man named Robert Cathcart through a program at a mental health, drug, and alcohol treatment center. She would hang out at his apartment almost every evening, and at the end of January, she met his new roommate, Ricky Smyrns. Ricky had recently gotten out of jail and then spent some time in rehab before moving in with Robert. Between July of 2009 and January of 2010, Jennifer became Robert's best friend. According to Robert, Jennifer didn't like Ricky, but he would, quote, force her to do things with him, and, quote, he was being a bully toward her. Ricky wanted to have sex with her, but Robert said that she wouldn't let it happen. During this time, Jennifer had been living at Welcome Home, a homeless shelter in Greensburg, after losing her lease on an apartment, but she would split her time between the shelter, a library, and Robert's apartment. While hanging out at the apartment in Greensburg, Jennifer made friends with a 17-year-old girl named Angela Marinucci, who dated Ricky on and off and was friends with Robert. Angela and Jennifer would talk for hours over the phone as though they were both teenagers, despite Jennifer technically being much older. Like Jennifer, Angela suffered from a disability. When Angela was 15, she suffered a traumatic head injury, dramatically changing the trajectory of her young life. In late January of 2010, Jennifer moved to Mount Pleasant to live with her mother and stepfather, 
She frequently traveled back to Greensburg by herself for dentist and counseling appointments. Her parents pressured her to move out and be more independent, despite her disability. Although she was 30, Jennifer's disability caused her to have the intellectual capacity of a 14-year-old. After her parents helped her find an apartment in Scottsdale, she wrote on her MySpace profile, This is my time to make a new start for myself, and making new friends, and not being afraid of anything. Her optimism always shined brightly, and her sister Joy Burkholder described her as someone who, quote, saw the best in everyone. If someone was mean, she thought they were having a bad day and she would have been nicer to try and make them happy. Jennifer was very easygoing, recollected her mother, Denise Murphy. She liked to have fun. She was trusting. She made friends easily. She loved to dance and she loved to sing. When Jennifer got off the bus on February 8th, 2010, she was met by Ricky and Angela, as well as a man named Robert Masters and a woman named Peggy Miller. By this time, Robert Cathcart had moved out of the apartment, leaving it to Ricky. Since Jennifer had stayed there many times before, she planned to stay over at Ricky's apartment that night and then pick up her medication the next day. A man named Melvin Knight and his pregnant girlfriend, Amber Meidinger, were also at the bus station when Jennifer arrived. Amber recognized Jennifer from a facility they both attended that provided services to clients with mental disorders and disabilities. After meeting at the bus station, Angela accompanied Melvin and Amber to their hotel and confided that she was in a relationship with a married man. Amber eventually learned that it was Ricky, he was married and had an infant son with Karina Smyrns of McKeesport. In fact, the reason he had been in jail was for harassing and assaulting his wife back in October of 2009. At the hotel, Amber overheard Angela tell Ricky during a phone conversation, quote, you better not be with that bitch, referring to Jennifer. According to Amber, Jennifer told her she was going to marry Ricky, although this does conflict with how Robert said Jennifer felt about Ricky. It's possible that during his abuse, Ricky had manipulated Jennifer into thinking he cared about her. Jennifer didn't actively try to break up her best friend and her boyfriend, but Amber noticed tension between Jennifer and Angela after Angela overheard the remark. Amber and Melvin later joined Ricky at his apartment, where Robert and Peggy were also present. Ricky invited Melvin and Amber to stay the night. Jennifer arrived later. According to Ricky, the night she arrived, Jennifer attempted to be intimate with him, but he rebuffed her and became angry with her. The next day, Jennifer decided not to go to her doctor to get her medication, which angered Ricky and Melvin. While Jennifer showered, Ricky phoned Angela and told her about Jennifer's alleged sexual advances towards him the prior evening. Angela responded, Nobody is having sex with my man. After her shower, Melvin and Ricky started to bully Jennifer by taking things from her purse and pouring mouthwash on her purse and clothing. They then hit her on the head repeatedly with empty soda bottles until Melvin grabbed her, knocked her into a wall, and began choking her until she fell to the floor crying. Later, Angela arrived, still distressed about Jennifer's advances toward Ricky. Angela and Amber accosted Jennifer in the bathroom. Angela pushed her into a metal towel rack three times and struck her in the chest and head. 
After Jennifer denied any interest in Ricky, Amber shoved her into the towel rack three times, causing her to strike her head. Melvin then dragged Jennifer into the living room, where he and Ricky dumped spices and oatmeal on her head after Angela poured water on her. Ricky then directed Jennifer to shower. After she showered, Melvin brought her out of the bathroom, forced her to remove her clothes, and threw them out of the window. With Ricky's help, Melvin cut off Jennifer's hair, made her clean it, then took her into the living room and stuffed a sock into her mouth. Thereafter, Melvin raped her. After Angela decided to spend the night, Melvin, Amber, and Ricky accompanied her to the house to receive her prescription medication. Ricky instructed Robert and Peggy to remain with Jennifer and not let her leave. As the four returned to the apartment, Peggy told the group that Jennifer was trying to escape. The group then beat Jennifer, gave her some of Angela's medication, and left her in the living room while they went to bed. Jennifer's sister, Joy Burkholder, attempted to call her at some point during this time, only to find that Jennifer's voicemail had mysteriously been changed to, You've reached the phone of Melvin and Amber. The following morning, a dispute over soda led Angela to push Jennifer to the floor and hit her. In defense, Jennifer kneed Angela in the stomach, causing Angela to report to Ricky that Jennifer had killed her baby. However, Angela was not pregnant. Ricky confronted Jennifer, demanding, If you want to kill my kid, why should I let you live? Angela insisted that Ricky choose between her and Jennifer, leading Ricky to call a family meeting. Following a second family meeting, Melvin put Jennifer in the bathroom and Amber hit her in the head with a towel rack to force her to drink Angela's urine from a cup. Jennifer gagged into the toilet. Amber repeated this action with a second concoction containing feces and urine, striking Jennifer in the head with the towel rack until she obeyed, again gagging. Amber and Melvin made a third foul mixture containing powdered detergent, water, and some of Angela's prescription medication, which Amber forced upon Jennifer, again hitting her in the head with the towel rack until she consumed it and vomited. The torture continued unabated. Melvin took Jennifer into the living room, where he and Ricky bound her feet with Christmas lights. When the lights did not function, Ricky, Melvin, and Amber removed the bulbs and tied Jennifer's ankles and wrists with the empty strings, adding Christmas garland around her ankles. During this time, Peggy's nail polish was applied to Jennifer's face. Ricky called a third family meeting and inquired whether they should kill Jennifer. After the family voted to kill, Ricky forced Jennifer to write a note and told her that they were going to make her death look self-inflicted to avoid being held responsible. The note read, I haven't been very happy for a while, and I also feel like that everybody would be better without me on the earth. I will always love my mom and stepdad no matter what, and I will always love the rest of my family also. My nieces and nephews would be lucky to have a better aunt than me. I am done with life. Goodbye, Jennifer. Melvin took a knife from Ricky, who told him, you know what to do. Melvin and Amber took Jennifer to the bathroom, forced her to her knees, turned off the light, and shut the door. 
Melvin asked Amber if she was ready, and she replied she was. After Melvin put something in Jennifer's mouth to keep her silent, he asked her if she was ready to die, then stabbed her in the chest multiple times and stabbed and sliced her neck. As she lay gasping, Melvin exited the bathroom and announced that she was not dead yet. Angela said to kill her and that she wanted her out of here. Ricky took the knife and cut Jennifer's wrists, after which he and Melvin choked her with the Christmas lights. After Jennifer perished, Ricky called another family meeting to decide what to do with her body. Ultimately, Ricky and Melvin left the apartment with Jennifer's body in a plastic bag inside a garbage can. Upon returning, they told the others they had left the can under a truck. The group then went to bed. Jennifer's body was discovered later that morning by a man who found the garbage can underneath his work truck in a middle school parking lot. He contacted police, who launched an investigation. Jennifer's mother, Denise Murphy, was brought in to identify the body. She later said, quote, I was in total shock and still in total denial. I just couldn't imagine how that could happen to her. According to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Melvin Knight, Dr. Cyril Wecht was the forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy on Jennifer. The court document states that Dr. Wecht received the body while it was still in the garbage can, placed head first, partially covered with plastic bags, with Christmas lights wrapped around the neck and wrists, and a decorative material binding the ankles. The body had suffered multiple incised wounds, abrasions and contusions, and several prescription drugs were found in the victim's system. Dr. Wecht concluded the cause of death was a combination of all of the injuries, but was primarily due to stab wounds of the chest, which penetrated the left lung and went into the heart, producing a substantial hemorrhage. Dr. Wecht opined these injuries were inflicted shortly before death, with the intent to cause pain and suffering. The victim would have remained conscious after the initial infliction of the wounds, bled for a couple of minutes, lost consciousness, and finally died within four to six minutes. Jennifer's funeral was held on February 14, 2010 at Keppel Graft Funeral Home. According to her obituary, she was preceded in death by her maternal grandfather, William R. Zimmerman, and paternal grandparents, James Daugherty and Mary Ann Simpson. Surviving besides her parents are sisters Joy Burkholder and Jamie Daugherty, a stepbrother Dave Murphy, maternal grandmother Virginia Holland, two nieces Brianne and Bailey Burkholder, a nephew Dylan Daugherty, and many aunts, uncles, and cousins. Jennifer's family requested no flowers and asked for memorial contributions to be made to one's favorite charity. Her elementary school teacher, Margie Cravata, wrote, I taught Jennifer when she attended Bovard Elementary School. I remember Jennifer as a sweet and gentle spirit. I send my deepest condolences. May God help you deal with this horrible loss. During the sentencing phase for the individuals collectively known as the Greensburg Six, Jennifer's family testified that she just wanted friends. She wanted acceptance to be a part of something. Her pursuit for happiness led her straight to her death. During day two of testimony in the sentencing phase for Ricky Smearns, 
Jennifer's mother, stepfather, and sister took the stand, testifying to Jennifer's character. Quote, lighthearted and happy, she'd do anything in the world you'd ask her to do. Her sister Joy Burkholder said, she always wanted to be part of the group, no matter what the group was. Angela Marinucci was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Melvin Knight and Ricky Smearns were sentenced to death. Amber Meidinger pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 40 to 80 years. Robert Masters pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 30 to 70 years. Peggy Miller pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 35 to 74 years in prison. Jennifer's murder was featured in an episode of the show Frenemies. The episode is titled Cruel Intentions, and it aired on February 14, 2013. Though it illustrates Jennifer in her final moments, it's imperative to remember her for who she was in life. Jennifer Lee Daugherty will forever be remembered for her kind heart and her charming smile. Her sister Joy remarked, I didn't realize at the time how she added to life until she was murdered. Her absence is indescribable. The music is gone. The sun still shines and the earth still moves, but the music is gone. <laughs>